If you would bow with me in prayer, and then we're going to open and look at 2 Corinthians 5 together. But let's pray first. God, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this day that you've created. We thank you for this place that you've provided. We thank you for your people that you have called. We thank you that you have brought us together. We thank you for your eternal life-giving word. And so we pray that as we gather together as your people that you would speak to us in your word. We pray that your spirit would move in this place that the Holy Spirit would teach and guide us and lead us into all truth as you promise. We pray that you would apply the truths of your word to our hearts and our minds, that you would continue to conform us to your image. We thank you that we have this time together. I pray for each person that you've brought here today, that you would just tune uh, their minds and their hearts to receive your word, that you would soften our hearts to have exactly and understand uh, what you have for us today in it. We thank you. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I want you to think for a second as we're in this season. We started last week, a short series just for a few weeks as we're around Christmas, the season of Advent as we're we're thinking about the coming of Jesus and his birth and what that means. We're just kind of hitting on some different ideas, thinking about trying to kind of ramp up the anticipation in our hearts as we celebrate Christmas. And so I want you to think for just a second this morning about what is the best gift that you've ever gotten. Just think about that in different ways. Uh, what comes to mind? Uh, why is it good? Uh, what made it so? Uh, maybe you think back and you think of a time uh, when you're a child. Uh, I was thinking about that last week, how Christmas is so wonderful as a, as a child. And I even mentioned that last week. And we can't buy anything for ourselves. We don't really have any means. And so the fact that someone would give us something is really wonderful. And so when you think about the best gift you've ever given you've ever gotten, maybe it goes back to when you were a little kid. Maybe it's something uh, that your parents got you or someone gave you that you could have never gotten yourself. And it still to this day has a, a soft spot in your heart. Or, or, or maybe as I was thinking about really great gifts, what is it that makes them really great? And I, I was just thinking of different things that come to mind. One is sometimes when it's unexpected, uh, whether it's for Christmas or some other time. But when someone just gives you a gift, and maybe uh, you didn't think you were going to get it or it was not even on your radar to get that or you hadn't even really thought about it. And someone gives you a really wonderful gift. And, and sometimes it's really great because it's unexpected, but sometimes it's really great that somebody gives it that they knew you well enough to give you a gift like that, that they just kind of surprise you with it and it really hits to something that really speaks to you. And so I was thinking that's, that's part of it. Sometimes I think a really great gift uh, is because it's something that we really need or it's really useful are helpful to us. Uh, sometimes gifts that are really great are like that, that you end up, maybe even as you get it, you don't realize how good it is. And then over time, you realize how helpful and useful it is. Uh, a, a few years ago, I got a, a Bible software that helps you study the Bible. And now I use that like multiple times every week. And when I got it, I was like, oh yeah, this is great. I'll use this. This is nice. And I didn't even realize how great it was until much later. And so it's been very, very helpful. So sometimes maybe it's like that. Or maybe it's just something that gives you a great joy as you get it. Uh, it's either fun or it's an experience or, or whatever it may be. Something that just really brings you a lot of joy. I, I remember as a kid, like middle school and high school, I was a huge music fan. And so my Christmas list every year was like lists of CDs I wanted, like tons of them. All these CDs I couldn't afford to buy. And my parents would always get me a few. And I remember Christmas being like putting my headphones on and getting to listen to like this album that I so wanted to hear. And it gave me a joy immediately. 
That may seem like a little thing, but those were pretty great gifts at the time. I didn't have the money to buy them. Somebody gave it to me and then I got to enjoy it. And so when you think about great gifts that you've gotten and what they look like and and who's given those to you and maybe in different things, I want you just to think uh, big picture as we think about Christmas. And I want us to think this morning how really what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus is the ultimate gift. Uh, what we're going to look at in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and what Paul says to us, I want you just to see how he hits on every single one of these things. Jesus is the ultimate gift. He's the perfect gift in every way. And as we start to think about anticipating Christmas and celebrating it, instead of thinking the gifts that we give one another, which are great and wonderful, and that's a fun time and joyful, we get the greatest gift in Jesus. And I want us to think about why. And so 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to look at that together this morning. Uh, we're kind of jumping around. We're hitting on just some different passages. And so we haven't been in 2 Corinthians at all, and then we're jumping right in. And so let me just set the scene a little bit for you as we step into 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul writing a letter to a church that has a lot of issues. Uh, it's a church that he helped start, and he loves these people, and he cares for them. Uh, what we know in the Bible is First and Second Corinthians are actually uh, some letters in a series of letters, a correspondence back and forth between Paul and this church and he's trying to iron some things out and encourage them and tell them. And so when you get to second Corinthians, Paul talks some about some of the things he's endured and how hard it's been and how difficult and the things and the pressures and the weights that are pushing in on him. But he says some incredible, huge things that are greatly encouraging. And at the end of chapter four, he actually talks about how he says this incredible thing at the end of chapter four for this slight and momentary affliction is preparing us for eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And it's really incredible when you put it in the context and you know what's going on with Paul. He says this light and momentary affliction and what Paul means is like being beaten to within inches of your life and being shipwrecked and being stoned and being thrown in prison. Those are all the things that happened to Paul. And he says they're light and momentary afflictions compared to what's coming. Right? And so that's kind of the picture we're seeing as he's encouraging them in 2 Corinthians and then we get to chapter 5. And so this is the way I want us to look at it. And we're going to step into chapter 5 in just a second. But the way I want us to look at it is first when we consider how Jesus is the greatest gift. First and foremost, what do we need? You know, oftentimes when we think about really good gifts, there's things we want and then there's things we need. Uh, the best gifts are usually both. We need them and we want them and they kind of come together and that. But I want us to think about what we need first as we consider Jesus being the greatest gift. Secondly, how do we get it? And then lastly, what continues to happen as we do ongoing, what happens? You know, I said at the beginning, the great gifts sometimes are really useful and wonderful and all these things. But then they continue to be good and great and helpful as you go forward. And so I want us to think how Jesus meets all of those. And so what we need, how do we get it and what happens when we do? And so let's begin right at the beginning of Second Corinthians, chapter five. Start with verse one with me. For we know that if the tent, which is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For for while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened, not that we'd be unclothed, but that we'd be further clothed, so that what is mortal would be swallowed up by life. And so he kind of paints this picture of temporal, earthly, where we are right now and what is to come and the beauty that's there. And he starts to talk about that. Being further clothed, heavenly bodies and what that... He actually ends 1 Corinthians 
with this great big idea of what's to come in our bodies as they become heavenly bodies, as the immortal puts on the mortal. He's kind of picking up with that here. You're seeing that. And so that picture of what's to come and the beauty of that in the picture. And so we can hear that and we can go, what do we need? And we go, well, we need heaven. We need new bodies and new uh, God setting all things right and go, well, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's part of the picture. That's a really great, incredible thing to think of. But sometimes when we talk about what we need, what we most need, we sometimes jump ahead. Sometimes we can uh, get our wants and our needs mixed up or we can start to put wants over needs or we can miss what we truly, truly need because we jump to other things. I was thinking about my son, Quinn. Uh, he'll tell me, uh, Dad, I'm hungry. Right? Like Fridays, I get to stay home with Quinn. Fridays is my day off and Quinn's not in school yet. And so it's just the two of us. He'll say, Dad, I'm hungry. And I go, great. What do you want? Let's have a sandwich. I'll go, I'll make you a sandwich. And I'll go, no, no, I don't want a sandwich. I go, what do you want? I want candy. And I go, for lunch? We haven't had lunch yet. You can't have candy. No, I want candy. And then I'll, so I'll go through a list of all these things that I'll make for him. I'll make you a sandwich. I'll make you this. And he goes, no, 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 I want candy. And I'll go, but you need to eat something. And he'll go, no, what I need is I, I need candy. And then he'll explain it to you. My, my stomach is just hungry for candy, right? That, like that's the only thing that's going to work. And that's often the way we operate, right? That's the way we operate in our spiritual lives. That's the way we operate in all kinds of things. We go, no, no, I really need this. I really want this. And, I really, and we're kind of missing. Now, as a parent, as a father, I know he needs something more than candy, right? I could feed him candy and then he'll be really hyper and an hour later he'll crash and he'll be hungry again and it'll be a mess, right? You know that from experience. I know that's not what he needs. He needs something far more than that. And so as a dad, I say that to my son. No, we're not going to have candy for lunch, buddy. Right? You can have a piece of candy after lunch, but we're not having that for lunch. But that's often the way we respond and the way we think of things. And so we need to rely on what God's word tells us of what we truly need. Because oftentimes our flesh, our, our fleshliness, our sinfulness gets in the way and we put we elevate wants over what we truly need. And the truly need, what we truly need will actually begin to filter into our wants and God will remake us. But we can miss that oftentimes. And so we talk here and he talks about groaning to put on heavenly things, right? For we in this tent, we groan, talking about our earthly bodies. We groan longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, be further clothed with life. This idea of of being restored completely and totally. And it's a beautiful and wonderful picture. When we think about it, we go, yes, of course, that's what we want. Or that's what we need. We want heaven. We talk that way. Yes, I want to go to heaven. I can't wait. I'm ready for Jesus to return. I'm ready for that idea. The sad part is sometimes when we talk about heaven, I'm struck with sometimes when we begin to talk about it, you get real quickly that our theology of heaven comes from greeting cards or made-for-TV movies, right? And, and, and what I mean by that is oftentimes made-for-TV movies and greeting cards were disembodied souls flo- floating in the clouds and uh, or we get uh, it seeps into our theology jokes about heaven and Peter's going to be at the gate, whether or not you get in and all that kind of crazy stuff, which is not in the Bible. And so what does the Bible actually say? Why are we groaning for that? Why are we longing for that? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, when the uh, in the regeneration, when the son of man sits on his glorious throne and he says that to people explaining to them when he returns, what it's going to be like. And what he says, we might miss when we read it because he says in the regeneration. 
But to his audience, they knew what he meant. In the regeneration, the word that he uses, palagenesia, means that all things are set right. The return to their perfect and pristine condition. That there's no more sin, there's no more aches, there's no more pains, there's no more problems. And Jesus explains it that way. And so when we start to think about what heaven would look like, glorified bodies, no pain, those things are now wiped away, things Uh, relationships are not broken down. Things are now set right as they are meant to be. It sounds really wonderful. You know, it even talks about in Scripture, it seems to hint out that we will have jobs to do. Can you imagine having jobs to do that are completely and wonderfully fulfilling and there's no frustration that comes with them? That'd be really great, right? Yeah, everybody's like, oh, yeah, right. It would be wonderful to do things you enjoy doing and you're never frustrated with it. And you're seeing fruit from it. And it's wonderful. And so we start to see these pictures in Scripture and we go, yes, absolutely. It resonates with us. We're longing, as Hebrews says, for a better country. We just looked at that a couple weeks ago. And what that does, and we go, yes, that would be wonderful. And I would love that. Even if you're an unbeliever, if you're not sure about who Jesus is or all this stuff, or heaven, or what the Bible says, the idea of doing away with all the end of shootings, and violence, and terrorism, and all the things we see in the news right now. Yeah, even as an unbeliever, you go, yeah, that sounds pretty good. The idea sounds good anyway. And so when we think about all that, we'd say, yes, that's great, and that's wonderful. But here's where we can miss the needs versus the wants sometimes. We can go, yes, I want that. That would be wonderful. And that would be great and everything will be so beautiful and I can't wait to get there. But here's what's happened sometimes. And I've asked this question to multiple people and been surprised at the answers at different times. If you could have all that that I've just described. Yes, heaven sounds wonderful and it's great. And you'll be united with loved ones. You'll be united with those that have passed before that you miss and your friends and all those things. And you'll get to be together and it'll be all these things. And you could have all that and God wasn't there. Would you take it? I've actually had people go, yeah, I think so. That'd be pretty awesome, right? That'd be really, really great. But if we stop there, we're thinking in our flesh. What it says in verse 16, what Paul says in verse 16, from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. I started thinking about that. How do we regard Christ as the flesh, our fleshly, sinful nature? How do we regard Christ in that way? And there's a couple ways. One in our flesh, before we come to faith, before we see Jesus as Savior, we might just say, well, Jesus is a good teacher. He's a good guy. He's worth listening to. If I apply some of these principles to my life, he might help me. That might be the way we uh, regard Christ according to the flesh. And I want you to think about what's underneath that. And maybe even as a Christian, we start to regard Christ from the flesh. Because when we talk about heaven and the beauty and the glory of all those things, but if we see Jesus as just kind of our get out of jail free card that gets us to these things over here that we can't wait to get to, that if Jesus is just the means to the end and not the end, we are regarding Christ in the flesh. You understand? That picture there, if we're content with the idea that we could go to heaven and everything would be set right 
and we'd have our loved ones around us and it'd be good and there'd be no pain and no crying and all those kind of things. But Jesus isn't there. We don't understand who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis said, God cannot give us happiness and peace apart from himself because it's not there. And so if we regard Christ as the means to get us to something else, then we've missed it. Now, He is the means that gets us to all those things. We'll talk about that in a second. But He gets us to that so that we get to be with Him. That we get to see Him fully and completely and totally. And so when we miss that, we miss the fullness of what we're talking about. And so bring all that together. What do we want? Or what do we need? What do we need more than anything else? We need more than anything else an intimate relationship with God. To be walking with Him. All those other things are byproducts of being at one with Him. Of knowing Him and walking with Him and trusting Him and seeing Him. All those other things are just byproducts of it. And when we take our focus and we put it on the things that He gives us as a result of being in a relationship with Him, we miss it completely. We say, yeah, I'll take heaven without God. We've totally missed the point. And so what we need is a relationship with God. We need to be reconciled to God. And that takes me to the second thing. How do we get it? We're going to sing it in just a minute when we finish here. But we sing it every Christmas. Hark the herald, angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild. And then it says God and sinners reconciled. Right? Our problem in every one of these areas, our deepest need is to be in a relationship with God. But we need to be reconciled. We're sinners. We've separated ourselves from the perfect communion with the Father by our sin. And we don't walk with Him in all ways and all things. And so that's why Jesus had to come and that's how we get it. And I want us to think about that picture. How do we become reconciled to God through what Christ has done for us? And I want you to think about this picture when we talk about needs and wants. There's all these wants that we, we want that are good and right. right? Talk about violence and terrorism, and guns, and shooting, and all the things that are in the news right now, we go, I so want that to go away. Which I do too. And when you get into those debates, by the way, this is just a side note, when people are for gun control, or they're for gun uh, safety, or all those kind of things, do you realize that all of us want the same thing? Wherever you fall on whatever side politically or how we're going to do it, everybody's basically agreeing we want less people getting shot to death. It's a good thing to remember and to walk in humility with all people you come into contact with. We actually want the same thing. We might disagree on how to get there, but we want the same thing. But that longing and that desire and all those things, every single one of them, whether it's terrorism or whether it's guns or shootings, or whatever it is, every single one of those, the answer to them is sinners need to be reconciled to God. Everything we're wanting that we would see in heaven is only going to come from walking closely with God through what Christ has done. And so the answer of how do we get it is through Jesus. It's what He's done for us. And so I say this every week. The Gospel is that we are sinners separated from God. And we can never do it, and so God comes to do what we can never do for us and restores us in that relationship. And I'm going to unapologetically say that every single time we're together. Because we need to hear it every time we come together. That that's how we're saved. 
But I want us to think deeply about what he actually does for us. When we talk about what we need and then how do we get it, why Jesus is the greatest gift ever. All the picture of what this says. Paul says some incredible things in this passage. So how do we get it? Look at verse 14 with me. For the love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And if he died for all, then that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. All of this is from God who through Christ reconciled himself to us. Right. And so look at all the things he just says that Jesus has done for you, that God has done for us through Christ. He says that you're now uh, a, a new creation. He says that you once regarded Christ fleshly and you no longer do. And he says all of that is a gift of God through what Jesus has done. And so I want you to just break that down and think about those uh, kind of individually to get the whole picture that's here. When we start to think about it and think about what he's done for us, and you see this all throughout Scripture in different ways. But not only did He die for you to take your sins, but He died that you might believe, that you might be able to believe. Have you ever considered that? That on the cross, in the atonement, Jesus becoming the sacrifice on our behalf purchased our ability to believe. Have you ever considered that? How glorious that is. That He purchased the ability that you would regard Him not as in the flesh, but that we regard him as he is. That we begin to see him as he truly is. And he says you do that and then you begin to see that you no longer live for yourself. He begins to remake you. He makes you into a new creation. And so that picture is incredible when you start to think about it. Jeremiah talks about this in Jeremiah 31 and 32. Jeremiah is a prophet who writes 700 years before Jesus. And he talks about the new covenant that's going to come and what God is going to do in Christ for us. That's going to come to fruition when Jesus enters into the world and he lives this perfect life and he does this and he lays his life down. And so listen to what Jeremiah says in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And they no longer shall each one teach his neighbor, teach his neighbor and each teach his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I'm going to remove that so that I can be in their hearts and written in there and they're going to know me in a very real, intimate way. They're going to know me. But then listen to what he says in chapter 32, verse 38. And they shall be my people and I will be their God and I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant and I will not turn away from doing good to them. I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing good to them and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and with all my soul. And so God makes this promise to Jeremiah way before Jesus will come. 
this is going to be this new covenant and through it, God is going to now give you the ability to believe. He's going to be give you a way to see things, to know him, to walk with him. And he says that's coming in the new covenant. And so you go, well, how does that come to fruition? How does the new covenant come into being? I'll give you a hint. We talk about it every single week. Right? Stand right here and say the same thing over and over. This cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you. Right? Jesus says all those promises, all that God told you and talked about and said how he's going to do this work in you and he's going to make you to where you can now believe and you can put your faith in him and you now care about him and care about others and all these things that he's going to do to you and restore him to the Father is coming to fruition by what Jesus does. In the cup of the new covenant which is poured out. You hear what Jesus is saying. And remember those promises I've been making? For like a thousand years, I'm now doing it through my blood and my body given for you. And so he institutes it and he tells us. And so you, I want you just to get the fullness of that picture. All of our faith, all of our ability to believe, all of those things are a gift through what Christ has done for us. That's incredible. He purchased our ability to believe. But that's not all. Look at what it says in verses 18 and 19. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled them, us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God has reconciled the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. You go, well, how does this work? He says, I'm going to take your sins. You deserve to be put away from God forever because of your sin, because of your trespasses. You need to be reconciled. And he said, so I'm not going to count them against you. And not only am I not going to count them against you, I'm going to make a way to take care of them. Because he says, he's not going to count our trespasses against us. I'm going to give you the ability to believe. I'm not going to give you the punishment that you deserve. And then I'm going to take it a step further. Right? Because look at what he says in verses 20 and 21. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ. Be reconciled to God. We all need to be reconciled to God. We're all sinners. Everyone, that applies to every single one of us. And then verse 21, For our sake he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him he might become, we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand what he's saying? This is one of the most glorious verses in all the Bible. He passed over your trespasses, right? This is what you deserve. I'm going to lay down my life and give you the ability to believe. And then I'm not going to count what you deserve against you. And then I'm going to come and I'm going to step down into this world and I'm going to live perfectly. And I'm never once going to sin. That's what it says that Jesus did. He who knew no sin, he never once sinned. He doesn't deserve anything except the blessings of God in every way because he never once committed sin. And it says, so he who knew no sin, God allowed him to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Do you understand what it's saying? He gives you the ability to believe. He doesn't count your sins against you. And then he says, I'll take all of them and I will take them on myself. And I will pay for them for you. That's how he enacts the covenant. 
This is the cup of my blood. And I want you to think about what Jesus says when he says that. I am so eager to eat this with you. I am so excited to tell you what I'm about to do. Do you see the gift that he gives in every way, every single part of it? He says, I'll take your mess and I'm going to pay for it for you. This is grace, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. What a beautiful picture. Every single part of it along the way he's done. But that's not it. I want you to think about not only what we need and how do we get it, but then what happens when we do. Oftentimes we'll stop right there. Right? Jesus has paid for our sins. Yes and amen. He has passed over our trespasses. He became sin. And we oftentimes just stop right there and we go, that's wonderful. He's taken all my sins. He's washed my sins away. That's great. But if we stop right there, it's like he took our sins away and he returned us to neutral. And then he goes, okay, there you go. Look at that gift. That's not all. The last part of verse 21 says, He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you understand what that's saying? Not only does he remove your sin, not only does he not... Uh, He passes over your trespasses. Not only does he become your sin and he removes them, he now says, I'm going to give you all my good works and I'm going to hand them to you. That in Christ, you are the righteousness of God. It's not he restores you to neutral. He now imputes his righteousness, accredits, gives to you his righteousness on your behalf because of what he's done. I'm going to give it all to you. So I can say, you're my beloved son. You're now welcome into the family. You are now clothed in Christ's perfect righteousness in every way. It's not just I return you to neutral. I now give you the works of all of it. By grace you have been saved. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. Every single part of it. And here's the incredible picture. As he does that, He says, I'm going to return and I'm going to bring that to fullness. But in the meantime, right, Jesus did this in the middle of history and then he ascends and he says, go make disciples. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and I'll return. But in the meantime, he continues to give out of this gift. Right. The fullness of it is coming, what we long for in heaven and all those things we talked about in the beginning. But even right now, he continues to do a work in us. Right. Verse Uh, 16, for thou, we used to uh, regard everyone according to the flesh and we don't any longer. Verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Even right now, he begins to remake you, right? Those promises of Jeremiah are coming to fulfillment right now. I'm going to write my law in your heart. I'm going to live with you and walk with you and lead you and begin to conform you to my image. And the fullness of that is going to come as Christ returns. But even right now, he continues to do that. He says, you no longer regard those in the flesh, but you regard them according to Christ. And so now you can live for him and love others in that same way. Do you see how that's part of the gift? You were made to live honoring God and then loving other people. 
And we don't do that in our fleshly sinfulness. But as Christ comes in and begins to remake us and turn us inside out, we begin to live that way. It's the gift that keeps giving. All along the way, he continues to do that and continues to show us and continues to bring us into that. He changes our affections. He makes your needs and your wants come together. You ever think about that? As he remakes your heart and as you see him as glorious, your desire is to worship him, which is what you most need. He brings the two together. And then there's this incredible picture. And I still don't really understand why God does it quite like this. But he says, uh, verse 18, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he says, we now get to be part of this. And so not only do we get the greatest gift that hits on all our needs and all our wants and all our desires, and he does every bit of it. All of it is by grace. He then says, I'm going to use you as part of this. You get to be ministers of reconciliation. You've gotten this most wonderful gift. Now you get to go tell other people about it. You get to be part of what I'm doing until I return and I bring the fullness. You get to now be part of it. And so when you think about the best gifts that you've ever gotten, right? what you need and what you want and what you desire and it's unexpected and it's what you can never do for yourself, every single bit of that comes perfectly together in what Jesus has done for us. 2 Corinthians 5 is a beautiful, glorious chapter. I love verse 21. That picture is remarkable of how much God loves us and what He's done for us. And so let us think on those things the next week, the next two weeks, three weeks, to be daily. But just as we, compare, as we think about uh, the anticipation at Christmas, gifts and the busyness and all those things, let us always be rooted and grounded in the greatest gift that there ever is, is our relationship with God through what Jesus has done for us. Let's pray. God, we thank You for the glorious truth of Your Word. We thank You for the ways that You love us and You care for us and You continue to pursue us, drawing us to Yourselves. We thank You for all these things. We thank You for this glorious picture of Your great exchange that You would willingly come and take my sin, take our sin and give us your righteousness through what you've done. And for that, we can only say thank you. We thank you that you've given us your word. This time together. We pray that you continue to impress the truth of your word on our hearts through your Holy Spirit. We pray all these things in Jesus name. Amen.